We continue our study in the book of James, the letter of James, a series we've called Listen and Live. Today we're in James chapter 1, just looking at verses 5 through 8, a passage about wisdom and faith, about doubt and about God and about prayer. It's about many things. Uh, I, I, I characterize it as a, as a passage about uh, the path we take on life. And it reminds me <laughs> of our last trip to one of our favorite park areas, uh, Indian Rock, uh, over just down the way from us. There's a, the creek runs through it. I think it's the Darby Creek. And we like to go down there and some rocks across the creek and we found that we can cross the other side uh, sometimes we'll build bridges out of different fallen trees or whatever but uh, the last time we went we all of us made the trek back up the hill to our car with the squish squish, squish, squish slop of soaking wet feet shoes pants socks we had all fallen in at one point or another on the creek even though we, we knew a path across the creek even though uh, the rocks didn't move they were still the same rocks they were still reliable uh, for various reasons we got wet and as we look at this passage today that's that's the picture i have in mind that as we come to face the tests and the trials and the struggles of life it's much more significant, obviously, than crossing a creek and avoiding getting wet, but it's very similar. In that, you know, what are you going to stand on? How are you going to make the next step? Where are you going to go? What's your confidence in? Where are you going to get help? And how are you going to persevere? How are you going to find the courage just to take that next step? Maybe that rock's a little too far. Maybe it's slippery. How, how, how do I make it across? All those questions are a good analogy, a good illustration of what James is preparing us for as he speaks about wisdom. Following on those first couple of verses that said, count it all joy when you encounter trials and struggles. Would you read with me here, James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, as we look at the path, as we enter into life, and, and consider how we move forward. Let's read together. James 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is God's word. Father, would you bless now the hearing of your word, the study of your word, the opening of your word. May it be more than ink on paper, more than pixels on the screen, more than sound waves hitting our eardrums. Lord, 
would you make it what it is? The living, breathing truth. Transform us through it and by your spirit working with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this short letter of James, as we talked about a couple of times, it's a little over 100 verses. And you remember, we've also talked about that he, he, he gets very concrete. James has more than 50 commands. So it's about a command every other verse as we go through this. He, he's very concrete. He's very much about real life. He's very much about how we ought to live. But I noticed this week an interesting thing, that he begins and ends this letter, as short as it is, with sections that are about general principles that aren't a specific you do this or that, but in fact are if someone, if anyone, or let endurance, those, those third-person commands we've talked about a little bit. But the, the general idea is this, that there's, there are general principles that James hits at the beginning and the end of this letter. And this section that we're reading right now is sort of the end of it. Verses 2 through 4 were that general principle about considering joy in the midst of trials and suffering. Uh, that idea of a mindset that approaches life in a certain way. It was general, not specific. Then he gets general here as well. That what we need is wisdom. That to enter into life and consider it joy, to have that mindset shift, to then consider, okay, well, how do we step out? How do we, what do we do next? We need wisdom, which is what wisdom is all about. It's about what do you do in the real world, given the fact that we believe God is who he says he is. Wisdom is that. Bring together the reality that we live in with the reality of the Lord. As we not only put our faith in Jesus, but have to put one foot in front of the other. That's wisdom. And that's why James goes from joy and trials and tribulations to hey, not lacking anything. That God's working through those things that you wouldn't lack anything. And oh, by the way, you are going to lack some things right now. But if you want to work on something that, that God wants to do for you, it's that you would not lack wisdom. He says it right here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and it will be given to him. The, the idea is that if, if your confidence is in God, you start moving forward asking God for wisdom. That you move forward in a life of testing by listening for wisdom. Especially as you ask God for it. Because it's not just going to come miraculously through a bolt of, of, into your head. It's often going to come as you ask God for wisdom, as you have conversations, as you read his word, as you pray, you're going to realize things about bringing together who God is with the reality of life around you. That's how you find wisdom. And James says it's a promise that if you lack wisdom, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, again, that third person, not a command to you, but just a general principle. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And the end of the verse says, and it will be given to him. And by the way, by the, verse 8, we're up to five commands in just the first eight verses. It is bearing out that it's about every other verse. There's a command. The same wording as verse 5 of let him ask of God is in verse 6. The NASB doesn't quite translate it that way. It says, but he must ask 
Literally, that is, let him ask in faith without any doubting. So if, if, if we're thinking about what do we do in life, you know, how do we consider it all joy? How do we then move forward into life? What's the next step that we take? James points us to asking God for wisdom in a certain way. And that's our, our, our first topic. Okay, so what is the specific way to ask for wisdom? That's what he seems to be pointing to us. You could apply some of this in general to asking God for anything, but the specific focus James has in mind, it seems, is wisdom. But the first thing we need is wisdom. So how do we ask him in a specific way that James is pointing to? The first thing is that we need to ask with confidence. We ask with confidence. At first glance, this seems like a, a blank check, right? If you just ask for wisdom, it's given. But James does add that limit, right? He says he must ask in faith without any doubting. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But this question of is there, is there, is there more than just faith that we need to have? Is it just all we have to do is have more than a little faith? Because Jesus says that again and again in the Gospels, right? He took the disciples to task. He, he kind of chided them several times. Uh, at least one, two, three, four, at least five times. He said things like, oh, you have little faith. He, he says at one time in, uh, in, in Mark 9 or Matthew 9, I can't remember now, it's in front of me, but he said, you know, how long do I have to put up with you? Oh, you have little faith. There's a, a frustration Jesus expresses to his disciples. This is something about their faith. And he says as well, Matthew 21, 21, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree. Remember, he withered it with a word. He said, you'll not only do that, what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Those are big big things, literally big things, but those are big asks of God. And Jesus is saying, you just need faith. Is that what he's saying? Is he saying basically that this is a blank check signed by Jesus on God's infinite bank account and you can put in whatever amount you want? I hope you ask that question and don't just except one person's version of that answer or another, because there is a good answer. And in fact, as we look at things like that, that sound really, really, really good, you know, especially those things that really appeal to us, we ought to say, is this really what he's saying? Am I understanding it correctly? And likewise, if it's something we really don't like, we want to make sure, is that what he's really saying? Because if we don't have that kind of conviction, we're actually going to be the double-minded person that James is talking about. So you have to have the confidence one way or the other. How do you, how do you answer this question? Well, you answer it actually. Essentially, is, is, it, is there anything more than faith required? Is that all that is required? And, and he says, actually, James clears it up. If you just flip over to James chapter 4... Actually, for me, it's two pages. Just a couple pages. James chapter 4. 
in a discussion about conflict and, and desires and, and hearts and those kind of things of going on, James 4, 1 through 6, James says there are limits, actually. James says that faith that we have is a faith with limits. And the question is not, are there? It's what are those limits? He says in verse 2 of James 4, you don't have because you do not ask. Oh, great. Yes, all you have to do is ask. He doesn't stop there. He says in verse 3, James 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Do you see what he's saying there? And literally, this is the sense is you are ongoing asking and ongoing not receiving because you are ongoing asking badly. And that's not a far off translation. It's not, that's an interpretation of the word motives there. It's actually literally the, you're asking badly. It could be you're asking in a way that's physically harmful. Sometimes the word is used that way. Or it could be you're asking in a morally wrong way. That it's a matter of right and wrong, and you're asking wrong. Well, how do you do, know if you're asking badly? Look at verse 3 again. You keep asking and keep not receiving because you keep asking. And the sense of that asking is reflexive grammatically. It means it's asking for yourself, asking with reference to yourself badly. And then back to the NASB text here, that you may spend it on your pleasures, that you may devour what it is you're asking for, for yourself. And that, that word for spend is actually has that sense of devouring like a wild animal, consuming something mindlessly. Uh, the word for pleasures, spending it on your pleasures, that word for pleasures is in the Greek, edone where we get our word hedon, hedonism. It is that sense of pleasure for the world and for things of this life that Jesus talks about in Luke 8.14 where he uses the same word to describe one of the things that chokes the life out of our faith. For the seeds scattered on the, the ground among the thorns, one of the thorns that comes and chokes life is pleasures, along with worries and riches. It's the pleasures of this life, he says, that inhibit growth, that there's no fruit to maturity. It is the selfish pleasure that Titus 3.3 talks about, that is a part of our old way of life, our former way of living before Jesus entered into our life and the Spirit came into our hearts. So there are limits to the faith. I hear people talk about this with the name it, claim it idea that all you have to do is believe hard enough. And I, it seems like the sense is all you have to do is believe that the outcome is certain and you will receive it. That is not biblical. There's a limit. James says, Jesus says, you can't just ask for anything and expect to receive it. In fact, he says, you ought not to expect you're going to receive anything at all if you ask wrongly. The limit is not your faith. The limit is not, oh, you don't have enough. 
If you just cross the faith level, if you fill yourself up with a little more faith, then you'll get it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you need to understand the limit and you need to consider your motives, your heart. What are you asking for and why? Why am I asking for this? And the sense here is, if I'm asking for myself, certainly if I'm seeking my own satisfaction, my own comfort and pleasure, my own enjoyment, which we all, every prayer is tainted by that somewhat, right? But if, if, if God is not really factoring much into the asking, and if other people are not really factoring much into it, and if God's word is not factoring much into it, if all of that, you know, that's what's going on here, is the selfishness and self-centeredness of our asking would limit our receiving. It's at that point that now we're ready to talk about what he means by doubting. Because the idea of faith without any doubting, asking without any doubting, is, is another angle on saying that there are limits. And what he means is that you have to ask with a full commitment to the Lord. It's in a sense, the complement of self-centered asking is to say that you're asking with a full commitment to the Lord. He says it this way in verse 6, he must ask in faith without any doubting. We need to understand what the faith is and we need to understand what doubting means. The faith I'm not going to spend much time on because we did last week. It's essentially, you look through the letter here and he's, he's, he's assuming he's speaking to Christians whose faith is in Jesus, whose life says that they are one of God's people and who are looking for and putting their confidence in Jesus. In other words, the faith in view is one that receives and rests in Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. That's, that's the faith. It's not faith in yourself. It's not faith in your faith. It's not confidence in your confidence. It's none of those things that... Is it, no, it's not Mary Poppins. It's the other one. Sound of Music, yeah. When she sings that song, you know, I have confidence in confidence alone. Right? Sorry. On a couple levels for that one. That's what a lot of, when we say name it and claim it, that's, that's what people are talking about. I believe it, and that's all that matters. I believe it confidently, and I know I will receive it. That, yeah, and. If you're saying, I believe I'll get that Cadillac, no. If you're saying, I believe I will get a million dollars by playing the lottery, no. And if you do, it wasn't from God. And it will likely ruin your life. The, the faith he's talking about here is a faith in Jesus and the doubt then that he's talking about 
has to be something with relationship to Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus. And the doubt is related to Jesus. And the word doubt here, look at verse 6, where the word doubt appears twice. He says, he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. The, the sense of the word doubting there is being at odds with yourself. It is disputing and arguing inside. I, I picture it as uh, in the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, Gollum, who's in one place he's like arguing with himself you know, about the precious. He wants the ring of power, but, but he's also said, you know, that he will help Frodo get the, to the place he needs to go, which is to destroy this ring. And, and Gollum's back and forth, like, yeah, and he and literally kind of has this split personality that he wants to help Frodo and he wants the ring. That's a really, really good picture for doubting. Because the sense of doubting here is this inter, inner conflict about what, what we want, and, and it's more so here about our confidence, that, that what are we hoping in? Uh, one commentator puts it this way, the word doubt suggests not so much intellectual doubt, like I wonder if Jesus really existed or you know, those kind of things. It's a basic conflict in loyalties, as for instance, between God and mammon, Matthew 6, 24, or God and the world, James 4, 4. You know this is the case because he compares this doubt to the surf. I would better translate it as waves of the sea. Not, not a ship on the waves, but the, the actual waves themselves in the midst of a windstorm as the waves are not only going up and down like waves do, but now they're being pelted by hurricane-force winds. And as they come up, you know, some of it sprays and some of it turns and some of the water is sucked up into a whirlwind, like a little mini whirlpool thing going on in the water and going up out of the water. There's just this constant churning is the picture of these waves being tossed and driven by the wind. You know, it might be that James growing up there not far from the Sea of Galilee, had personally experienced this. It's possible. But it might be, and I think probably more likely, that what James is thinking about is what he heard from the disciples about that time, especially when Jesus told them to go out on the boat and they head out and a storm comes, a windstorm, a hurricane at sea almost, and He's sleeping. Jesus is asleep. And all the disciples are freaking out. Some of them even, you know, strong fishermen have been on that sea all of their lives fishing and have seen this weather before. And they're freaking out and screaming, ah, we're going to die, we're going to die. And the water is coming over the sides of the boat. And the wind is whipping and Jesus is sleeping. And they're like, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care? And Jesus says, with a word, he calms the wind and the waves. With a word. And he says, Oh, you of little faith, 
What is he saying? Did he expect them to calm the wind and the waves? No. He expected them to trust him. He's literally there in the boat with them. And he's demonstrated again and again who he is, what he can do, what he's capable of. And for them to accuse him of not caring is to completely miss the point of why he's even there with them. It's to miss the confidence that they could have had even in a really scary situation. And that's not to say it's not scary being in the hurricane. It doesn't, it's not to say it's wrong to feel like you're going to die and to not know what's going to happen. But they had Jesus right there in the boat with them. That's the doubting. And if they wrestled with it, you will too. They had Jesus in the, physically in the boat with them. They had seen Jesus with their own eyes. And you and I, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're reading the promises and the stories, and we find ourselves in them. And we know the truth of what Jesus has done. And we've experienced even the Holy Spirit. And we still, in the midst of the wind and the waves and all, we're like, God, don't you care? That's doubt. It's not so much this intellectual thing. It's, it's to say, even, you know what? It's not even to ask the question, which the Psalms do. The Psalms wrestle, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to let this happen? What's going on is to say, I've already concluded or mostly concluded, God, you don't care. Because if you did, you would not. Or you would. Which is to say, in other words, at the same time that, that you're mad at God, that he could have done something, you're saying you've already concluded the right way it should have been. You are putting, as C.S. Lewis called it, God in the dock. You're making God the witness, uh, the defendant. When you are called to be the witness <laughs> for what God has done. And hence, in verse 7 and 8, he says, That man ought not to expect he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable. The word double-minded there is, is literally double-souled. In the Greek, it has a sense of this deep and profound lack of stability that infects every part of the true doubter's life. And hence, that makes them what? Unstable in all his ways. If, if, if you're really confident in yourself and you know God is wrong, you're living without God and you're going your own way and you're just going to have problems all over your life. It's like trying to cross the creek and instead of going on the solid rocks to maybe say, I can just cross on these floating pieces of wood that I'm not even sure of, but hey, they look good to me. Or to say, you know what, I'll cross on the lily pads or I can make the jump across the 20 foot creek on my own because I believe it. That's the kind of instability that marks our lives and we wind up soaking wet, right? This is not, you're not a person who doubts. If you're standing there on the rock 
and, and you know that next rock could hold you up, and you're just, ah. Mm. I'm not sure I can make it. One, two, no. One, two, three, all right, on, on 10. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, on 100. 10, 11, 12, 13. You know the rock is going to hold you up. What you lack is some confidence in yourself. You're not the doubter. If you wind up falling in the creek and so confident of the rock, that you scramble up on the next one and jump to the next one, right? And then you find yourself just in the water, again, even worse, because you slipped and fell. That's not the doubt. The doubt is to say that the rocks are not the way I get across, that I'm going to chop down my own trees, I'm going to find anything I can to cross this other than the rocks that have been provided, right? That's, that's the doubter. That's what makes us unstable, because God has demonstrated that he is the solid foundation, that God has demonstrated that his promises are certain and true. That what he wants is us to believe that, to, to put our faith and confidence in him and to commit to him. Even if, even if when we jump, we fall short. Even if when we jump, we take a little long, wrong angle and we slip and fall. Even if when we are wise and older, you know, and we find a nice stick and staff that can hold us up and we go across with it, but yet at some point we still lose our balance and fall in the water. It wasn't the rock's fault. What God wants and what the sense of this doubting is, is a lack of commitment to God. He wants loyalty. And we ask with confidence when we have a faith with limits and a faith with a loyalty. And so as we think about that, you know, that we need to be connected to Jesus. We have to have a faith in Jesus before we ask about anything to God. That is the way we can approach him. We also have to have a commitment. So we put our faith in Jesus and we've said basically there is nothing else. You know, that's one of the reasons why we do member interviews. It's one of the reasons why uh, we do what we call fencing the table at the Lord's Supper. We, we say this is for people who have committed to Jesus. Who believe not that they're perfect, not that they have arrived, but that Jesus has provided all that they need who are living repentantly with confidence in Jesus, not self-righteously confident in themselves. This commitment to Jesus, connected to him. And James will talk about adultery in chapter 4. If you love the world while you're trying to love God, Jesus called it, you know, loving God and mammon. Those things are in there. We'll deal with that more in the future. So it, all, all of that to say, this is how we ask with confidence. But in a sense, well, how do you even do that? Right, so the second part that we briefly just hit as a reminder, and we'll un unpack these things way more in the future, I want to just remind you of, of, of where you get that confidence. 
It's not something that you build up in yourself. It is something that comes from God. So if you, ask, if you want to ask with confidence, you have to have this faith with limits and faith with the loyalty, but you have to be basing your confidence on God's character. We have to ask as we move forward for things that are based on God's character. With this confidence comes from God's character. James packs a lot in verse 5. Just look at it real quickly. If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Three things there. One, he's the giving God. This is the God who gives. You ask based on God's character. He is the giving God. God. Grammatically, that's what it's more like, which contrasts with what? The doubting person, the giving God. Direct conflict. God gives life and breath to all things, to all people, Acts 17, 25. He gives the resources and power and abilities to generate wealth and to have something to even give to him. That comes from him, Deuteronomy 8, 18, 1 Chronicles 29, 14, 1 Timothy 6, 17. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? You know, just think about your life. You were born. Did you choose where you were born? Did you choose your parents? Did you choose any of that kind of stuff? You've received it. It is the God, James says in 1, 17 and 18, who gives every good and perfect gift. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting and no turning, including God giving the new birth through Jesus because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the giving God. That's his nature. That, that's how we can ask with confidence. And that's why there has to be these limits and why we have to be loyal to him because there's, there's no one else who gives like that. In fact, that's the second point, right? He's not only the giving God, he's the generous God in the sense of the word there. He, he gives to all generously. The word generous there has this sense of straightforward or sincerely or simply. He gives without reservation. He doesn't give as we all do, right? Which is, I will give you something, and then I, of course, expect something in return. I will scratch your back, you scratch my back. That's not how God gives. He says wisdom is more precious than gold or silver, and he says just ask for it. Right? He, we read uh, in the service there, the Old Testament reading, was when God said to Solomon, ask me for what you want. And Solomon said, in humility... This is such a large people. Who am I to lead them? Give me wisdom. What does God say? Great. Great. You got wisdom. Have a nice day. Or as we say around here, what? Have a good one. God says, okay, because you asked for that. And I think there's kind of a double-layered thing going on there because it is through wisdom that you then know how to lead well and you can accumulate wealth and all those kind of things. That They're kind of related to each other. But God makes that explicit. He says not only because you asked for wisdom, you didn't ask for the death of your enemies, you didn't ask for riches, you didn't ask for any of those things. I'm going to give you all of those things. There's a sense in where if you don't have wisdom, 
You, you can't get those other things. And if you do have wisdom, they are the gateway to so much else. That's why James starts with wisdom after saying, count it all joy when you have faced counters and trials and all those kind of things. The next question is, well, how do I do that? And he says, well, you ask for wisdom. And then God's going to give you the rest of the stuff. If you step forward knowing God, who he is, his character, and you say, what do I do? How do I move forward? Trusting in him. God's giving is generous. It's simple. It's not expecting something in return. He's the giving God. He's a generous God. And he is the gracious God. And this is the key to all of them. It's the key to everything. He is the gracious God. He gives without reproach. Think about that. He gives without reproach. That means he gives without a guilt trip. He gives without an I told you so. He gives without an eye roll or a sigh. He gives without reluctance. He doesn't go, are you serious? Didn't I just give you $20? What did you do with that money I gave to you? yesterday. And what did you give the money I gave you last year? What did you give with the money I gave you the year before that and the year before that? <sighs> I'm telling you, you are wearing me out. I'm not sure I'm going to give it to you next time. None of that. That's, he gives without reproach. He doesn't keep score. He doesn't say, you can have it and I'm going to add it to your tab. You now owe me $1.7 million dollars gives without reproach. He gives without adding it to your tab. He gives without saying, okay, and now you need to work it off. Now make sure you do your good deeds and stuff. He gives graciously. He is the God, James says, who gives greater grace. As we come to him in humility. So if you think about that in this context, if you are someone who feels like you have been double-minded, if you have been doubting, if you have wrestled with God's goodness, and even if you're still not believing it right now, do you hear who this God is? He gives generously, without reproach. He gives graciously. This is the God who is gracious to the double-minded. He's gracious to the doubters. Jesus, when he was at his harshest with the disciples for their little faith, was still persevering with them and exhorting them alongside of them and with them. Jesus was gracious with John the Baptist when he said, are you the one? After Jesus had been ministering for a long time and John says, are you the one? Matthew 11, 1 to 12. Jesus was gracious with the father who had the boy who had uh, seizures that would throw him down on the ground and the boy 
was even the moment under a seizure in a fire. And Jesus was talking with the man, the boy's father. And the man says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't say, well, go straighten it out. Get it right. He says to the demon, get out. Jesus was gracious to those who doubt, including, oh, yeah, that guy whose last name was Doubt. Wasn't that a coincidence? You know, Doubting Thomas. I guess it's his first name. Doubting Thomas. Isn't that amazing that his first name was Doubting? That's not really his first name. But we call him Doubting Thomas, right? The last time you referred to Thomas, you didn't call him Doubting Thomas. Jesus was gracious to him. Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe unless I see it with my own eyes, unless I stick my hands in the wounds and everything. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'm here, Thomas. Come here. Put your fingers in my side. I'm here. See the wounds. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That's the solution to doubting. To say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. I am sorry I doubted you. I repent. Help my unbelief. Admit you need help. And here's the thing. If, if, if you look at what's been going on here in this passage, if, if you put this all together, essentially, that the confidence that we need to step forward in life to face the trials and the struggles, that, that they are acknowledging our limits. Right? That we're not just going to get whatever we want, but to say, you know what, I'm committed to you, Jesus, and I, I am going to walk through this with you. Some people abuse the story and example of Job and would have you believe that you ought to respond to every trial that comes your way and just say, well, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I have heard... I have heard at least one story of that encounter with, with people who ought to know better, pressing someone who was struggling with grief to say your attitude ought to be, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. I'm sorry, but the tone is not in the Bible, so that's a, that's a bad interpretation. Job was suffering. The experience of Job and the example of it is, this commitment to say, I don't understand what's going on. I'm angry with God. I'm wrestling with you, God. Yet, though he slay me, I, I will not leave him. And not in the boastful way of Peter, who then fell away. And even if you fall away there, you can still be restored and reconciled. Is that not the beauty of this God who gives generously, graciously to us? The one who brings us into a connection with him. Right? That the, the, the faith we need is a faith in Jesus, this connection with Jesus that would unite us with God in a way that can't be separated. That no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand because we're in Jesus. This way that with a commitment to him, we press forward in a community together. The only way we can have a community that lives together and encourages one another is if we're all committed to Jesus and connected to Jesus. That, that then together we can find the courage to step forward. You know, as I have talked to the people who have been struggling through the valley of the shadow of death this week, I have heard consistently this 
this courage. It's maybe the best way to put it, really. That it can say, I, I don't understand this. This is never what I would have chosen. But then they see God's provision. And how he meets them right there. Or how they know he will. Because God's people are praying. Or how the family comes around each other and points to Jesus. This connection to Jesus, commitment to him, community together, this is where we'll find the courage. You realize that's the solution too to the division that's in our world around us. It's, it's the solution to being unified in a church, in a community, is this, this sort of humble, humble courage that puts our confidence in Jesus, recognize our own limits, that we can move forward together because we are, we are looking at God's character and who he is and our confidence is in him. Sometimes we'll be standing there and we know that rock's going to hold us up. And other people will be like, you can make it, you can make it, you can make it. Come on. But you know what ultimately gets us across the best? Is if someone will come alongside of us and say, I'm going to go with you. Or someone more balanced than me picks them up and carries them. And jumps across. That, that's, you know, that's Jesus. And it's his people. It's you. So maybe you need to be carried. Maybe you need someone to come alongside of you. Reach out as hard as that is. Be open to those times God is bringing someone. Maybe you could be that someone. Maybe you come alongside and you walk through. Maybe that's something that God is putting in your heart right now. And maybe there isn't a relationship that's suitable for that. Pray. And keep your eyes open. Because he will provide it. As he provides wisdom. That you would see the real life around you. In light of the real and living God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus. We draw near to you. Because you have drawn near to us. Give us courage. Lord, our faith is in you. And if it's in anything else, would you take it away? As hard as that is, Lord, that's so scary even to say that. I want to take it back. Because there's so much that has our attention. Our reputation, our bank accounts, our jobs, our relationships. Lord, give us the grace Give us wisdom. And from that courage to embrace our limits and be loyal to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.